right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you this morning. We honor your holy name. We honor you, Lord, because you're worthy of glory and uh, majesty and power and dominion forever and ever. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for his faithfulness towards his sheep, for coming and redeeming them and bringing them safely to you. And we pray and thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the gospel, the testimony that the Holy Spirit continues to give us, that indeed Jesus Christ is our Savior, indeed he accomplished our salvation, and indeed that we are his people because we believe. For no man can just up and go and believe without being drawn to Christ by the Father. And so, Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the gospel. We thank you for the work that you are doing through us and in us, Lord, to spread your message to your people, to all the corners of the world. And Lord, may you continue to make these words profitable on account of Christ. We pray and we thank you for all these who are Berean members. Lord, may you be with them, these who are here and those who are at home or in different places at this point for different reasons. Lord, may you be with them, and uh, Lord, we just grant, pray that you grant us your grace this morning to hear what says the Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John 11, still. <laughs> John chapter 11. And today we hope to finish the chapter. John 11, verses 45 to 57. John records for us and says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Verse 56, Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. And for a sermon title, 
Actually, I only have one title. I'm sorry. One man dying for the people. One man dying for the people. Jesus has come and Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And life does not remain the same for Lazarus, for none is raised by Jesus and remain the same. Jesus cannot visit your tomb and Jesus cannot come to your funeral and raise you and your life to remain the same. Because when Jesus shows up, he raises sinners from the deadness of their sin and he gives them spiritual life. Spiritual life to begin to walk out of the deadness and stinkiness of human religion and its dead works. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is wrapped in grave clothes and Lazarus is buried and a stone is put on his grave, on his tomb, on the side. The fate of Lazarus is spoken of by all those things that have happened to him. Lazarus is stinking. Jesus comes to the tomb. He wants the tomb to be opened. But Martha protests and says, No, Lord, it's been four days. Lazarus is stinking. Martha does not want the tomb door to be removed. Because the tomb door would reveal the stinkiness and the decomposition that already is happening to Lazarus. And that is what men do to you when you have been caught up in the deadness of the religion of works. Men will wrap you up in their own works and they will leave you in your stinkiness. But praise be to God, when Jesus shows up, he does not listen to the testimony of men about your Christianity. Because some will say, oh, he or she was a Christian from when he was two years old. (laughs) But Jesus does not go by that testimony. Jesus goes by the testimony of God. So he comes and says, no, I don't care about the stinkiness. I know the stinkiness is a commentary of the spiritual condition of Lazarus. And it is for this very reason that I have showed up that I may raise Lazarus to life. So Jesus has to show up and Jesus has to speak. And when Jesus speaks, a sinner is raised to life. And then when Jesus speaks, he also commands the sinner to have the grave clothes removed from them because the grave clothes are holding them in such a way that they can't do anything useful as far as God is concerned until Christ demands it and commands it and say, remove his grave clothes. And Lazarus comes out and that's the sign of the newness of life that Christ brings when he shows up. Lazarus is a picture not of people who are in the physical graves but it's a picture of people who are spiritually dead. And there are a lot of people in different places of religion, even called churches, where everything is dead. There's movement. There's a lot of physical movement. 
but people are still dead. And when Jesus shows up and he raises his people from the dead, he takes them out of that spiritual tomb. He removes them from the place where they used to attend to the religion of deadness, the religion of works. Christ does not reveal his truth to someone and leaves you in that condition and in the same place. He takes you out. So when Christ shows up, he gives his people spiritual life to know the true way of salvation because the true way of salvation cannot be known by human will or by human effort. It has to be God who shows mercy. God has to show up. And like I said, Lazarus is wrapped up in grave clothes and a stone stood by his tomb. Sister Pekka, were you? You came last weekend, right? Last Sunday. Just trying to remember what you had and what you did not hear from last week. Okay. So Lazarus is wrapped up in grave clothes and a stone stood by his tomb. Lazarus cannot come out of his grave not because the tombstone was too heavy for him. Lazarus could not come out because he was dead. So it is not the tombstone that prevented or stopped Lazarus from walking out. A dead man has no ability to do anything. They can't move their fingers. They can't move anything. And spiritually, men are born dead. They are born covered by their grave clothes. The grave clothes of their own sin, of their self-righteousness, and the stench that comes with it. Because if you are dead, there has to be a stench that accompanies that deadness. <laughs> this is as far as God is concerned. So the religion of man, as far as God is concerned, stinks. <laughs> Just to stink. Because where there's death, there has to be some stinkness. And so a sinner has no power or will to come out of their own spiritual death. No matter what good news you may tell them, one who is in the tomb cannot come out. You can't ask a dead person to come out of their tomb so that he may go and play golf. It's not going to happen. So the sinner, born dead in trespassing sins, has no power to come to Christ. For to be a sinner means one is opposed to Christ. And they are enemies of God. A sinner is one who has no power to come to Christ. Because if we don't define that, then we say every man has power to come to Christ. And that's false. A sinner is one who has no power and they have no desire to come to Christ. They are opposed to the gospel. They are opposed to God's way of salvation which is by grace alone. So to come to Christ, one needs Christ to come to them first. Christ has to always come before anybody can come to Christ. Christ has to come and quicken the sinner to life. He has to give them the desire to come. And not only that, he commands them to come. And then he gives them the power to come. 
all that Christ has to do. So God's people are made willing in the day of his power. He makes his people to both will and to do for his good pleasure. He has to cause it. He has to put the desire in you to want to come to Christ and to come to Christ. And so going to church does not mean that one has been raised from the dead. One has been raised from the dead when they know that Jesus alone came to their tomb and commanded their resurrection to spiritual life. And Lazarus did not have any confusion whatsoever as to who had raised him from the dead. (laughs) Lazarus was not confused about who raised him from the dead. He knew that it was not himself. And Lazarus knew that it was not his sisters who raised him from the dead. And he knew that it was not their neighbors. He knew that. But we have the professing church telling us that they raised themselves to life. They tell us that they stopped going to the Fig Leaf Baptist Church by themselves. Even to the sister church, which is only a block or two away Grave Clothes Baptist Church. I came up with another church. Not very far away from Figleaf Baptist Church, there is Grave Clothes Baptist Church. They are doing the same thing. Figleaf, they are trying to cover themselves. Grave Clothes, you are already covered. You are already wrapped in the works of religion. And you are stinking and you have been shut down or shut up in a tomb. So at Grave Clothes Baptist Church, they are telling us that God raised all men to life and all they have to do now is to invite Jesus. But Jesus already raised everybody who was in the cemetery. Is that true? No, Jesus did not raise all the people who were buried in the same place as Lazarus. Jesus did not. Who sent the message to Jesus that Lazarus was sick? It was not Lazarus. It was the sisters. Why? Because Lazarus could not. Lazarus was already dead. So Lazarus could not send a message to Jesus telling Jesus about his own death. So a sinner cannot send a message to Jesus about their own death unless Jesus has already come. <laughs> when we begin to show signs of life, it means Jesus already showed up. Already showed up. A sinner cannot come out of their own tomb and believe the gospel until God has given them the new birth. Jesus said in John 3, talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God and that means Jesus has to come to your tomb and cause that in everyone who believes before they can believe. So it is not true that God has given all men the ability to come to Christ. It's not true. The church will continue to have wheat and tares. The tares will look everything like the wheat and will continue to seem to grow, but will not produce the fruit of the gospel. The tares will not produce the fruit of the righteousness of the gospel. And the fruit of the righteousness of the gospel is to come to the realization 
that God only saves people one way, by grace alone, and no other way. The tares will not believe that they are saved only by grace. They will still find a way to add something to Christ. Find a way to sneak in something. Why are men still offended by the truth that God only saves by grace? You would think that this is the message that all men would receive. Or you're a sinner, you're under condemnation, and God is going to send you to an eternity of hell. Freely believe, come to Christ, and it's okay between you and God. No. No. We won't let this man to rule over us. It can't be grace alone. There has to be something about me there. You have to tell me about my contribution. So that's the folly of sin. That is what has become of man because of sin. We deny and we refuse God's way of salvation. Men say it is not God who chose people to salvation. God only chose those that he foresaw would believe him. But when you read the Bible, for sin faith is not the basis of election. Grace alone is the basis of election. So it is not true to say God is serving people that he foresaw would believe in Christ in the gospel. The new birth, when Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom, to see the kingdom is to receive the testimony about Christ and salvation. It is the new birth by the Holy Spirit that gives the elect sinner the understanding of who did what in salvation. The new birth causes the sinner to boast only in the grace and righteousness of Christ. That's the only way we're going to tell that the new birth has happened. Are they boasting in Christ alone as their only righteousness? The new birth causes one to cry out with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah says, when he saw the Lord, war is me, for I am undone. Why, Isaiah? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the new birth causes you to see the holiness of the King. It causes you to see the righteousness of Christ, and that it is unreachable. If you see the righteousness that God is requiring for salvation, you have to say, woe is me, because it can't be done. The new birth causes one to cry out and say, all wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death. And if our gospel has no wretched men and women, then it is no gospel. But a wretched man or woman has hope. They find their Hope in the whole person. And Apostle Paul says, Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. The wretched man or woman does not thank themselves. (laughs) They don't thank themselves for choosing Christ. They don't thank themselves and Jesus and say, Thanks be to Jesus and me, for I chose him, I invited him, I made him Lord and Savior. That's not the testimony of the wretched man or woman. The wretched man or woman 
does not sing Amazing Grace, how pretty are my shoes. Amazing Grace that foresaw my faith to believe and choosing Jesus. The wretched man or woman says, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I am alive. I was like an unclean thing, but now I smell good because God has washed me clean. He has sanctified me and he has freely justified me, even glorified me in Christ Jesus. That's the true gospel. That's the testimony of the wretched man and the wretched woman. But the gospel that we have in the church has no wretched men and women. And so men and women come to church with such confidence in themselves that we chose Christ. No, you did not. Hear this testimony from John 11, verse 45 and 46. John says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So Jesus and all these people are at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus has raised Lazarus to life. And what we see is always when Jesus shows up, there's bound to be division. When Jesus shows up. And what that means is that wherever the gospel of Christ is faithfully proclaimed or taught, you are not going to find that many people that agree with it. Despite the attempts by the modern church to make Jesus attractive, when Jesus truly shows up in a place, there's bound to be division. Read the Gospels. That's what always happens. And the more you shave off Jesus, the more people will love that shaved off Jesus. The Jesus with no nails, card hands, and feet causes offense to nobody. The Jesus with no nails, card hands, and feet does not cause offense. And so when you have no offense, you're not hearing the gospel. And that is why Apostle Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Why, Paul? Because a crucified Christ also crucifies all your self-righteousness. A crucified Christ says, all that we consider to be gain is lost and is done. A crucified Christ says, you have to lose your life for his sake that you may gain it. Which means, to give up on self-righteousness, self-salvation, and rest only in his righteousness. A crucified Christ says, you carry your cross. But that means crucifixion. It is not saying you are saving yourself on your own cross. <laughs> no, he is saying crucifixion of your own righteousness. But see this, if you are carrying your own cross, you can't crucify yourself on your own cross. Crucifixion is only done by others. Always. And so Christ is he who crucifies us and disables our hands that they may stop working to end salvation. Because once you are crucified, it means you can't do anything with your hands. 
So Christ is saying, you carry your own cross that I may crucify you on that cross that you may stop working. <laughs> Christ alone is able and enough to exchange for your soul. Your soul needs to be exchanged. It's been taken over by sin, death, condemnation, and there has to be an exchange. And Christ alone is he who is sufficient for that exchange. And that exchange only happens by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. But the modern day church does not want a Jesus with blood. They do not want to talk about blood as it may gross some people out. I actually had a sermon on YouTube. I can find that for you. Let us not talk more about the blood of Jesus because it grosses some people out. So the blood of Christ grosses people out more than their own sins gross Christ out. Because they're not thinking that Christ is also looking at their sins. And you tell me that these people are saved. There's no way. The Holy Spirit does not bring that testimony. So what, what do they do now? Since they don't want a Jesus with blood on him, they have to keep making him attractive. They give you some interesting stories, fishing stories, movie stories, motivational speaking with stories with some dude who is a hero who brings more tears to the people than the story of Christ crucified. The modern church is built on an entertainment platform, not on a gospel platform. Entertainment tickles the ears, but it dulls the ears, it dulls the hearing, it suspends the thinking. And that is why there's not much teaching and more and more people continue to be ignorant of the gospel and the word of God, even though in the history of mankind, we have the word of God reachable in a way that does not make sense. So Jesus continues and remains offensive even to the majority of the churchgoer. The cross is offensive and so men have to marinate it. The cross has to be marinated for you to have 30,000 people in a stadium. You have to have removed the offense. There's no way you are having 40, 50,000 people every Sunday if you still have Jesus showing up. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You have to remove the smell of Christ because it's offensive. And Apostle Paul already talked to that. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 17, he says, Apostle Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So Apostle Paul is saying, there are two groups of people who when they hear the gospel, to some, the gospel diffuses the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And Christ 
smells good. He smells of life. He has the aroma of life. But to another group of people, the same gospel smells of death. And the same gospel is going to lead them to death. So, where Jesus is concerned, there will always emerge two groups of people. You always have the wheat and the tares. You're going to have the sheep and the goats. And these groups of people are distinguished one from the other by what they say who Christ is and what he accomplished. Okay. So this other group of people, Jesus has showed up and he has raised Lazarus. You have one group of people that believed on him and there was another group of people that went and told the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. They did not believe the testimony that Jesus was making of himself. Jesus was performing the miracle of raising Lazarus to life to testify of his own glory as the son of God whom God has sent. And so those who belong to him, they believed on account of that miracle. And in the writing of John, Jesus prefers that one believes without seeing any miracle. But if one would believe in him on account of a miracle, that is still more acceptable than not believing at all. But we have this other group. They came, they saw the miracle, and then they went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Why did they go and tell the Pharisees about Jesus and what he did? Were they telling the Pharisees to help Jesus reach more people because they were so happy with what they saw Jesus doing or they were just some group of informers? Christ haters. This group of people were hardened by sin to what Jesus was doing. Why? Because the gospel is the word of God and is the two-edged sword. It saves some and it hardens others. Salvation and condemnation always come as a couple. They always happen together. The cross divides the saved from the unsaved. And that is why Jesus was in the middle of the two thieves. The one was saved and the other one was condemned. And Jesus is the one in between. And it is he who makes the difference. Noah and his family are in the ark. And the rest of the people are drowning in the waters of God's judgment. When God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, he set his people across the Red Sea, but in the process he drowned the Egyptians. So salvation always happens in the context of judgment. And so these people, these informers, they come to the funeral of Lazarus, they probably know the relationship that the family of Lazarus have with Jesus. They know Mary. They're always following Mary. If you read 
the chapter, they are always following Mary. So they know this family. And so they know something about the relationship that Jesus has with this family. And so they come in. Okay. And so they give us their testimony, their response to the good work that Jesus had just performed in raising Lazarus from the dead. So of all the things that they could go and tell other people and the Pharisees especially, they thought it was the most brilliant idea to go tell the Pharisees about Jesus. To their way of thinking, this was the best thing that they could do with their time and the knowledge that they had acquired of Jesus. They're thinking, hey Pharisee, I am not sure if you are aware of this, but I just stopped by. (laughs) I just came to let you know what Jesus has just done. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. We do not know what you guys are going to think about the whole matter or what you're going to do about it, but we just came to inform you of what is going on in this town. That's what they did. But in God's sovereignty, they had to go and tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees had to know because the hour of the glorification of the Son of God was drawing near. The Pharisees had to get angry about Jesus over something that should not have angered them. The Pharisees should not have been angry at Jesus at all if they knew who Jesus was. But they have to get angry. Why? Because God raised them for this very purpose, to get angry at Jesus. The Pharisees have to get mad at Jesus because Jesus has to be crucified because crucifixion is the appointed way of salvation. And so Jesus has to be put on the cross by the hands of sinful men. So the Pharisees have to get angry and God sees to it that they get mad. (laughs) Listen to verse 47 and 48 of John 11. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So the chief priests and the Pharisees on receiving the news about what Jesus had just done convened an impromptu meeting. And I'm not sure from my reading if this was in the Sanhedrin or not, but there was an emergency meeting that they convened. And the question was asked in the meeting by them, what shall we do for this man works many signs? And see that this is a collective question. This is what everybody felt about the person and work of Jesus. What shall we do with this man called Jesus? He is becoming a threat. Why? For this man continues to work many signs. What is wrong with that? And he is not stopping. He continues to preach the true gospel. What shall we do to stop him? We have done everything to stop this deceiver. Remember they called him a deceiver. What shall we do to stop this deceiver? 
his popularity with the people continues to rise. Excommunication is not working. Convincing people otherwise is not working. And at this rate, Jesus is going to cause an insurrection against Rome. And if that happens, Rome is going to pounce on us. But what is the problem if he continues to work many signs? What is the problem? Verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Okay. Now that really helps. (laughs) Now we know the real motivation behind their hatred of Jesus. Jesus is drawing a lot of disciples from them. Yes, if we let him alone like we are doing, without getting in the way, everyone will get to hear what he has to say, and they'll believe the truth, and our cheese will be gone. The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation and establish new authority. What are they saying? They're saying they will lose their jobs and the privileges that came with those positions. These guys ran the economy of Israel and the religion of the Jews and everything revolved around them. They got paid the most. They fleeced the people the most. And in our day and time, you'd say they had the best health care coverage and income. Sound like some congressmen. And And they're saying, this can't happen. We have to defend our government cheese. And so, we have to inflate the risk that is posed by Jesus. And get more people afraid. So that we may attract more people to our side to justify our plot to murder Jesus. So they say, The Romans will also take away our nation. So now, if the Romans have to take away the nation, it's affecting everyone. So they want to sell to the people the idea that if we don't get rid of Jesus, then this is going to affect you in a real way, not just us. And that's some good politics. It's a very good political trick in the book which is still being used today. Create imaginary enemies, get people afraid, and then rule over them. (laughs) So the people can't afford for that to happen, and so they have to be united with the Pharisees and the chief priests against Jesus to get rid of Jesus. Not this man, give us Barabbas, crucify him. These are some shrewd politicians. These are some shrewd politicians playing religion and politics to protect their privileged status and system. Jesus is the single threat that is threatening that system, that political and religious system. But hear this, verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Verse 50, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people 
and not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And that is very curious. Because according to the law, if you were a high priest, you were appointed for life. You were only prevented from continuing by death, which was, of course, one of the weaknesses of the Levitical priesthood. But the Romans may have come and changed the appointments of the priests because it was politically expedient and convenient for Rome to do that. But be that as it may, I think, John did not mean that there was necessarily a new high priest appointed every year. I do not think so. I think John's point is that in the year of the crucifixion of the Lord, because you see, we are already headed towards the cross. And John is supplying us the detail that in the year that Christ was crucified, Caiaphas was the high priest. However long his appointment was. So that year is John bringing attention and giving specific reference to the year that the Lord actually died. But this high priest Caiaphas comes and rebukes the other chief priests and the Pharisees and says, you guys are foolish. You know nothing at all. Verse 50, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas comes and he makes a twofold accusation of his peers and he says, well, you guys know nothing. You are foolish. You are plain ignorant. <laughs> he says, well, you are not thinking. You have not carefully considered what is happening. If you had any ounce of brain, then you would have known that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So apparently Caiaphas gives them clarity on what needed to be done and why this was going to be beneficial if they could only stop and think for a minute. It was expedient for us, he said. It was expedient for us, he said, that one man... Not two, not three men, not 13 men. But one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation of Israel should perish. Now Caiaphas, you surely sound to be way smarter than your peers and even smarter than your own pay grade. <laughs> I wonder where you got that understanding from. Where did you get this from Caiaphas? This cannot just be human free will at play. May you please finish your thoughts since you are such a smart guy. Your mother taught you very well. You are a smart guy. Very smart. John, you come and tell us what's going on. <laughs> John tell us more on how this guy came to that conclusion. Verse 51 and 52 now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one 
the children of God who were scattered abroad. Wow. Caiaphas is not that smart after all. He too knows nothing at all. He was not speaking from his own intelligence. He was not speaking from his own natural appraisal of the situation. Caiaphas was not speaking because he was such an astute political commentator. Caiaphas was speaking under the influence. He was speaking under the influence of God and making a prophetic statement about Christ. Just as Balaam, who was a false prophet, prophesied blessings on Israel, even though that's not what he meant to do. God is preaching the gospel without asking Caiaphas for permission. So Caiaphas, just as Balaam, finds himself in the hands of the same God. And that is absolute sovereignty. God was not taking advantage of Caiaphas. It is God who ordained the situation and it is he who put words into the mouth of Caiaphas. He violated Caiaphas' free will. (laughs) So much about human free will. Caiaphas could not say, oh no, I'm not going to say that right now. You keep it to yourself. No. Caiaphas had to say exactly what God was speaking through him and Caiaphas was ignorant of what God was teaching. Caiaphas was not speaking by his own knowledge, but by the knowledge and understanding of God. Caiaphas was not that smart after all. God was he who was directing the content of the conversation and what was to be done, how it was going to be done, by whom and when. Let's go back again to verse 50 of John 11. He says, Now do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? Yes, Caiaphas, you are right, but for the wrong reason on your part. You want to get rid of Jesus, but Jesus also wants to get rid of your priesthood because it is preventing people access to God. Caiaphas is a high priest, which means he was a Levite, because only Levites could be priests. And that means Caiaphas is the mediator and representative of the law. We are starting to work gospel. And as the representative of the law, he has made pronouncement that Jesus should die. Because the death of Christ is a legal transaction. So it is the law that has to make the pronouncement on Jesus that he has to die. And Caiaphas as the high priest is the one who represents the law. It is the law that condemned Jesus. But if Jesus dies, then the priesthood of the law also dies. If Caiaphas loses his job, It is not because of Rome. Caiaphas was not losing his job because of Rome. But he was losing his job by condemning Jesus to die. (laughs) Because if Christ dies, then the priesthood of the law also has to die. (laughs) For you cannot have two priesthoods. So if Christ dies, then it means 
Caiaphas also and his priesthood, the priesthood of the law, has to come to an end. So the death of Christ ushers in the new priesthood that is according to the order of Melchizedek. Because once the veil of the temple is torn in two, what does that mean? It means you don't need the Levitical priesthood to access God's presence. Once the veil of the temple has been removed, then you don't need the law to approach God. And if you don't need the law to approach God, Caiaphas is out of a gig. (laughs) And so God came in 70 AD and did what? And destroyed the temple, putting an end to the Levitical priesthood. And so Caiaphas is actually making a prophetic statement about the end of his own priesthood, that Rome would come and take their position. Yes, Rome is going to come and take your position. Because once Christ is given, then God has no more use of the Levitical priesthood. So Rome has to come and tear down the temple. So Hebrews 8.13 will say, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first absolute. Now what is becoming absolute and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so yes, you guys are prophesying more than you understood. And it is the understanding of the law of God that only one, this man should die for the people. And in this we see also the function of the law in pointing us to the sacrifice that is without blame. The law points to the high priest who is holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners and says, it is expedient that this one dies. And if one man called Jesus, this troublemaker should be sacrificed for the people in place of the people And for the benefit of the people, the whole nation would not perish. Why John? Because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So what is that teaching, Caiaphas? What is that teaching? That is substitutionary atonement. That is Christ dying on behalf of his people. If Jesus dies, then it was expedient for them. And it meant salvation for the nation. See again the words of Caiaphas. This very glorious teaching from the book of John, most of our teaching actually is revolving around this part of the text. What does that mean? It means the death of this man called Jesus is sufficient to deliver the people from perishing. His death is sufficient for complete salvation. See what Caiaphas did not say. Caiaphas did not attach any other conditions to the sufficiency of this death. He said it is expedient for just one man to die that the nation would not perish. And that means the death of Christ alone is and was enough ransom payment for our salvation. It was enough redemption price It was enough military power, if you'd want to put it in those terms, it was enough diplomatic power to keep Rome at bay. It was enough negotiating power with God to keep the people safe from their enemies. Rome is their enemy. Rome is their enemy 
They are under the power and rule of Rome. They are in slavery to Rome as they were in slavery to Egypt. So the picture of Rome here is not a picture of the nation, it's a picture of the powers that have overtaken God's people. Sin, death, condemnation, the devil is represented in Rome. And so it is expedient that this one man die that the people may be set free. So if they have to be kept from the power of Rome, they have to give over this one man, Jesus Christ. It is expedient. If sin, if death, if condemnation, if the devil are to be kept at bay from God's people, it is expedient that one man, this man, die. And when this man dies, everything shall be well. It is not the free will of the sinners that kept the Romans from coming. No, it was expedient that one man should die. That is the gospel transaction. They did not say, oh, our choice or what? No, they realized by the Holy Spirit that the only thing that needed to be done to keep Rome away was that this man should die. (laughs) Is that the gospel that people are preaching? The true gospel says this man, it is expedient, not to make salvation possible, but if this man dies, he is enough. They are talking about the sufficiency of the death of Christ to save us completely. So the gospel says the death of Christ alone is sufficient for your complete acceptance by God. And to add anything else to it is to deny the gospel. It is to say Caiaphas prophesied falsely. But no, Caiaphas did not prophesy falsely. He only prophesied ignorantly. He spoke more than he understood. This is what John said of Caiaphas' prophecy. Verse 52 again. And not for that nation only but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. That's brilliant teaching from John. So the death of this one man is not only for the nation of Israel, but for the gathering together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. That's brilliant theology. So the death of this man accomplished many things. It sets free from slavery, from Rome, that is the system of the devil. But not only that, it also gathers the children of God who were scattered abroad. But who are these children who were scattered abroad? In the immediate context in Jewish thinking, one would be thinking or speaking to the dispersed Jews, the dispersion or the diaspora. But in the language and theology of John, John is speaking much more than that. John said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 10.14-16, we'll connect those shortly. John 10.14-16 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Listen to this. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will be one flock and one shepherd. That sounds exactly like what Caiaphas is saying. But we find this also in Ephesians 1.10. Talking about the mystery of the gospel. Apostle Paul writes and says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, that is God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So the work of salvation, the work of Christ, was for the gathering of God's people into one under one shepherd. Into one flock under one shepherd. Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. I'm going to just read that without much commentary on it. Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 18. This is a very recurrent theme of salvation, the gathering of God's people under one shepherd. Apostle Paul writes and says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, listen to that language, who has both made one and has broken down the middle wall of separation because in the temple, the Gentiles and the Jews did not sit in the same areas. They had the Gentile court and only Gentiles could sit in there. But by the blood of Christ, he has broken down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. You see, those who were near and those who were far off. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So see the oneness that is being proclaimed, the oneness of the body and the oneness of Christ. So John tells us that if this man in John 11 is given over to death, that is the means by which the children of God who are far off, who are in distant lands, would be brought near to become one flock. Who are these people? These are the elect from among the Gentiles. 
And these are gathered together. How? How is Christ bringing all these people together to become one flock? By the death of the one man. By the death of the one man. And so the calling of these children who are scattered abroad can only be done one way. And that is by the preaching of the gospel, the death of this one man who died. So the death of this one man is the central message of the gospel and what it accomplished. Because when Christ died, he already finished the salvation of these people. And now gospel preaching is only to bring them to the knowledge of who they are in him. And so without preaching the death of this one man, you cannot keep Rome at bay. There's no freedom from sin and there's no freedom from death and condemnation. You have to preach the death of the one man if there's ever going to be freedom to those who are hearing the message. So we have to preach what it is that that death accomplished for you. Did the death of Christ actually make you acceptable right now so that if we're to die this second, it's well between you and God? Do you still have some things that you have to accomplish for yourself? What is it that the death of Christ actually accomplished for you? Did it save you completely or it left you one, two percent things to do? So if we are faithful to the message, we have to proclaim the death of this man and what it accomplished for the elect. And if we are not preaching the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, whatever we call church is not church. (laughs) Because the children of God who are scattered abroad cannot come to him unless they hear that message. And it is because of these children who are near and those are far that John comes and says, 1 John 2.2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It is he himself, this one man, whose death was expedient for us, whose death was for the propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. Those of the elect among the Jews and the elect among the world of the Gentiles. Because in the thinking of the Jews, the Messiah was only for them. John writing is a Jew. So he comes and he expands the boundary to say, no, the Messiah is not just working salvation for the Jews or Israel alone, but also those elect from among the world. And so that is important to understand when we are reading what John is saying about the word world in the context of salvation. He was not saying Jesus propitiated for the sins of everyone who lives and has ever lived in the world. That is a universal salvation. That is not what Jesus was teaching or John was teaching. For that would go against other teaching from the same author about salvation, the word that is being talked about is the word of the elect from Israel or the elect from among the Jews together 
with the elect from among the Gentiles. So that is the proper understanding of the word. But let's keep asking some questions so that we may get some more wonderful nuggets. How come that these who were scattered abroad are called children before they had even heard and believed the gospel? That is a very important question. They are called the children of God who are scattered abroad. When you read John 1 verse 1, sorry, John 1 verse 12, to as many as believed him or received him, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of men or the will of the flesh, but of God. So how come that these who are scattered abroad are called children before they have believed the gospel? They have not invited Jesus. They have not made him anything yet. And yet God calls them children. Why? Because in the teaching of John, John is a strong believer in election and predestination. And election and predestination are doctrines of God, not of man. God already had his elect and he called them children even though they did not know it. Before the gospel even went out to them, God already knew exactly who it is that belonged to him. Still remember in the book of Acts, Jesus said to Paul, I have many people in this city. Jesus, if you have that many people, I think he was talking about the city of Corinth. You have many people in this city. Why don't you just go and tell them? Why do you need me? He knows them. And then he says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They believed because they were ordained to eternal life. They did not become children of God because they believed. They believed because they were children of God. So God teaches the doctrine of particular and effectual atonement, which means this one man who died, he actually brought to God all the children who were scattered abroad. He did. When Christ died, that's when you were brought to God. You show up 2,000 years later, All you're doing is hearing what Christ already accomplished when he was given over. So the preaching of the gospel then is for calling these who are children to tell them of who they are, who they truly are, children of God. And those who receive the gospel testify that they are counted among the number of children who were scattered abroad. It's just the testimony of the gospel. What are you saying about Jesus? And that is why we continue to preach the gospel. Because somewhere, there's a child of God who is scattered abroad in sin. (laughs) We need to free them up. They are caught up in the religion of man. They don't really know what's going on as far as salvation is concerned. They are thinking they are going to be children of God when they start feeding the poor. No, you became children of God by election and by the death of this one man. But 
all the children of God who are scattered abroad are going to come. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They're coming. The sheep are going to come. And that is our confidence. But here, verse 53, we are not actually going to work much of the remainder of the, of the verses. So we will move very quickly through them. Verse 53 of John 11, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. What else could they do? They already determined that Jesus has to be killed. They did not even try him. No, they just came together and said, We have to kill this guy, and without delay, because his popularity is rising, and we may find ourselves without a gig. (laughs) So as soon as we find opportunity, let us lay our hands on him. So the death of Christ was pronounced on him by the chief priests as representative of the law. Why? Because the letter kills. The law kills, friends. The law kills. So Jesus knowing all that, John says in verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So John is alerting us to what is happening in story form. John is dropping the nuggets that the Passover of the Jews is right around the corner. So the whole story of Lazarus has that in the background. Jesus has to be lifted up on the Passover. And so knowing that, knowing that they wanted to kill him right away, he withdrew from them and he went into the wilderness, far away from their reach, but close enough for him to be able to return for the Passover which was near. Jesus is in absolute control of everything that is happening for no man can take away his life from him and no man has authority over him unless given them from above which means unless he gives it to them. So the Passover is very close and many are already streaming in for the feast and according to the law they were to be ceremonially clean for this annual event. And so those who were in much greater need of ceremonial cleanliness came early. These were the pilgrims and they started washing, washing their own sins. John is brilliant. They are trying to wash off their sins. And yet in the same verses, John is saying, if this one man be given over to death, he shall set them free. <laughs> Human work accomplishes nothing For a whole week they are washing, trying to remove their sins, and yet Christ is just going to be put on the cross, and in one day he removes all sin. So that constant washing was a reminder every year of their uncleanliness. 
But in their washing, they continued to look out for Jesus. They anticipated to see him for good or for bad. Some did not really know why they wanted to see Jesus. They were just attracted to his authority, to his power, to his understanding. But in that anticipation, they too were longing for the true Passover of God to be offered. And so it would not surprise me that the Lord would give us such understanding as to the reason why they were looking for him. He is drawing our attention to Christ. That's why they are looking for him. For they shall look to this one whom they pierced for their salvation. Jesus has to be the center of attention for both the peoples and the rulers. He indeed is the star of the show. The high priests are looking for him, the Pharisees, and everyone who has come to the city is looking for him because he is the fulfillment of that Passover feast. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees had given word that if anyone should see Jesus, they should report him to them. And of course, Jesus knew that, and so he had already taken off. Jesus, he needed no informers to spy out for him. Do you see the contrast? They tell people that if you see Jesus, you tell us. Jesus does not leave any informers to say, when you see them looking for me, you come tell me. No, Jesus already knows their plot. (laughs) So he takes off. And that is in keeping with what John already told us, that and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And this is what the Lord is teaching you and I as we finish this. He is teaching us that he has loved his people as he loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Jesus has always loved his people in spite of their sinful condition, in spite of the circumstances that they have gone through in their life, experiencing even death, experiencing even condemnation, experiencing even the devil. He loves them. And so John gave us a threefold testimony of how Jesus loved the three. That's a complete testimony of Christ's love for his people, in spite of everything that may be wrong with you. And that even though they may die, even died of sin, he is faithful to come to their place of burial to recover them. Even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, without power or desire to come out of that, because of his love for you, he comes anyway. Because he loves you, he comes anyway in spite of what other people may already have said about you. They may lie to you in sincerity because Martha was doing that in sincerity when she said, well, don't open the tomb. It stinks. When you have been caught up in false religion, all those around you are also sincere in the falsehood of that religion. They are not necessarily trying to deceive you, but that's all they know. So they need the grace of God to show up and remove them from the deadness of that religion. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that is a very important testimony for you and I. As we come here 
all the time. That is the hope that we have. That the one who promised to give us life and to raise us up has already done so by spiritually raising us, uh, raising us up to believe the gospel. But not only that, whatever is going to happen to you between now and death, uh, even in death, is not the final commentary that Jesus has on you. He still has use of you. He will raise us up in the final day. Jesus Christ is the one man who has to die. John is writing. Caiaphas is prophesying. But it is Jesus who is speaking through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is telling us that he is the one who has to die. And that his death was expedient. And not only that, it was sufficient to set you completely free from Rome. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in this man called Christ Jesus. His death is what set us free and in dying he died for us. The children of God that we may be gathered together in one as it is today. We may be gathered together in one that we may be one flock under one shepherd one spirit, one baptism, one gospel. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we praise him because he is worthy of praise and adoration. This is what they talk about in heaven. They continue to extol his name for the work that he accomplished to gather us together, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this wonderful time that you have granted us to hear of the gospel according to Caiaphas, the gospel that you preached through him about this man who had to die, whose death was expedient, that we who were your children scattered abroad and who were under sin, death, condemnation, we're set free, and this is a wonderful gospel, and many of your people still have not really heard of this gospel. Lord, we just pray also that you grant ears to many who are caught up in dead religion, many who are in their different tombs, who are stinking, covered in their grave clothes, and thinking that they are okay with you, but not knowing the true way of salvation, which was, which is the death of Christ. And that's the simplicity of the gospel, and yet many stumble over it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who continues to teach us. We pray for these who shall listen, who are far, the members of Berry and Sovereign Grace Church. We give them ears to hear what we also heard this morning. We pray for those who are far off forever. They are, Lord, you know, these who are scattered abroad. May you speak to each one of them as you please. We pray and we thank you for all blessing. We thank you, Lord, for you have been faithful to us. Even in times that we have been wavering. For we always waver. And yet you come and you don't rebuke us as to destroy us but to exhort us in truth and to keep going. So Lord, we thank you for this 
and all that you do for us. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.